we don't realize uh, how um, how we're living, um, you know, the 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 huge societal impact that the uh, Black Death made, the huge societal impact that that smallpox made. Smallpox changed the face of the world. Mm. Um, um, we don't realize it. We we don't just realize. We we tend to think history happens, but history literally happens in surges. It happens. It'll move like this, and you'll hit something that just radically changes. And 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 quite a few of those have been diseases that have radically changed cultures. They've changed sociology. They've changed the way people relate. Um, you know, and so it's this is going to be like one of those ones. But it's this is just a minimal. This isn't a big one. And that's why I I really feel this is this is a little bit of a warning. It's like a mini tsunami. Mm. It's not big compared to what what it could have been or what it could be in the future uh, if we don't learn. Welcome to Own the Future, a podcast made for and by changemakers who regain the courage to own our story, the freedom to own our craft, and the power to own the future. I'm your host, Lucas Scrobot, and today we have the one and only Dr. Don Curry back with us on the show. He was here maybe five episodes ago, back on March 2nd, when there was only 89,000 global cases of COVID-19, and today we're at 1.3 million. I brought him back on the show to continue the conversation of what's happening globally, what can we expect, um, and we get into a really interesting conversation about uh, global popul- population, the ecology of viruses, how this happened, and how it is going to shape society into the coming future. It, it is it is really a really fascinating conversation. I learned so much about the ecology of viruses, of why we are seeing a global increase of, of viruses and bacterias and deadly diseases, and some of the steps that we're going to begin to, to take as society into the future to curb this. And um, this is just a, a forerunner. This is just a primer of the next, you know, number of decades, hundred years to come. So without further ado, here's the episode with Dr. Don Curry. Dr. Don Curry, thank you so much for being back with us here on Own the Future. I'm really excited to talk. It's been about a month since we talked and uh, thank you so much for being here this morning. A privilege, Lucas, always a privilege. Now, Don, last time we talked, it was March 2nd. I looked up, I re-looked up the numbers um, just before you jumped on the call, and there was 89,000 cases last time we talked, March 2nd, with 3,000 deaths. Today, we are at 1.37 million and 74,000 deaths, so uh, 100, or 1,347,235 as of the moment, just before we got on this call. Um it's a stark night and day difference between when we talked a month ago. I think a month ago, um, America really hadn't really felt um, very much. And now I think there's 200,000 cases in the States. Right. And so this is, it, it looks like it's it's following the curve, but we had a conversation yesterday, which sparked this conversation where you were talking about, you don't want to flatten the curve too much. Uh, it's, it's, it's this, it's this payoff, uh, Lucas, because the, you're going to have to flatten the curve for a year. Uh, it's unlikely we're going to get uh, everything I've read. It's unlikely we're going to get any solution before a year. If it is, it, it's by God's grace. And we're very thankful. We come up with a, the only way that, uh, that eventually this, this infection is, is going to be, uh, is going to, is going to peter out as if, Enough people get immunized, and given its infectivity, about 60% of the population needs to be immune. That's either from getting the illness itself or from being immunized. If a year, it's going to be at least a year before we have a vaccine. So it's a matter of uh, how long and how we get to that 60% immunity and, and how much suffering, uh, uh, personal suffering, and also then societal suffering in terms of in terms of economics, we go through it. Every country is going to go through it. So, so I understand that it's going to take a year, but that's a year of countries being in 
pretty much complete economic lockdown, which is devastating, not only economically, but when we realize that that economic dollar actually actually means life loss, like that means real suffering, as you mentioned, um, is our countries going in complete lockdown? Is that the correct strategy or is that a correct strategy with kind of other things in consideration as well? Yeah, I think that no country is going to be is sticking They're They're just trying to slow the first wave down. Uh, then, you know, it's, it's a little bit like people um, not knowing how to swim at all with the first wave they're up to their necks and they're trying to keep the wave from being too high and they're treading water and, uh, and they're, and they're getting a feel for how they're going to swim. The, the reality is, is that there's no one model that fits every country. Every country is different uh, in terms of its, 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 uh, societal structure. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have uh, coronavirus in a, a, a city state like Singapore or a, con- a, a very concentrated uh, place like India or Bangladesh, it's going to be much different than Mongolia or Kazakhstan or countries that with a very spread out population. And we, we even see this in, uh, in America because what's happening in New York is not what's happening in South Dakota. And so each state is going to have to develop its own, uh, its own rhythm uh, for the next year. Uh, how to uh, minimize uh, suffering and death, and particularly so that hospitals are not overwhelmed, but then how to maintain economic output and stop their people from going crazy because everybody can't sit in the house for a year. You'll, everything will break down. Finances will break down, but people's morale will break down, and mm-hmm. overall, the uh, it's not sustainable. So I, I, it's a great point because in northern Italy, um, a lot of people are living with their elderly parents, which is one thing that um, caused it to spread so fast into the older population, causing the death rates to be so high. But I've I've read that in the UK and in the States, um, the percentages are, aren't nearly as high as in, in Northern Italy. And so you're saying that different strategies should be taken in consideration because of the demographic makeup, because of how people are living. That's right. And even the way they, they, they move, uh, L.A. And, and California life or Washington State versus, uh, versus New York, where you have a pe- massive number of people in New York using public transport. transport. The, whole, the whole city is based upon dense people. If work is going to happen, people don't have all vehicles to drive to work. Automatically, that makes New York mm. uh, much more complex to work out than than Seattle or uh, San Francisco. San Francisco uh, is, has similarities in terms of density, maybe not as much as New York, but in terms of transportation, far more private transport, and they've already been able to bend the curve in San Francisco. So, so there's we're talking. There has been a lot of talk about um, you know people saying we need to lock everything down, we need to lock everything down, and and other people are asking this, and I'm asking this is okay, great, I see. I see the need to lock everything down, but when do we begin to unlock everything? When do we begin to move? And whenever I ask that question, oftentimes the person will retort back um, kind of in step with with a lot of talking points right now, which is like, well, you know, we don't want to do it too soon. And it seems in some ways counterintuitive because what you're saying is either we need to have an immunization for it, which will take a year to 18 months, or there needs to be 60% of the population that has had it and recovered from it and has antibodies and are now immune to it to have that that um, herd immunity for the society to go on. So right now, Hong Kong is starting to loosen things up and I've heard some people point to it of saying, see, they've opened it up too fast, too soon, and now they're having cases again. It seems that people think that the whole idea of shutting stuff down is so that there are no longer any cases. But from my, my understanding of talking to you, that's really not what these governments are trying to do. No, it's, I mean, it's, there's no question. There's no herd immunity in Hong Kong at all. In many ways, Hong Kong and Taiwan and Singapore remain far more, far more vulnerable than parts of America. America and Italy having suffered more what what we're really needing to lock down now is until we break the first wave 
So knock it down. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can see it's dropping down. Number two, we get testing and ramp it up in a mega degree. And that's the area that the whole world has been very slack on. I mean, fair enough. China was just trying to keep their heads above water. We can't blame the Chinese, but we can blame Americans. We can blame the Europeans, though. The one group that was really fast off the uh, the mark was Germany. So if you want to f- see a country in Europe that is really doing it much better, it's Germany. They ramped up their testing incredibly. Mm. And so they're, they have a much better idea of where they are and where the immunity is. And the, the third thing that's coming up will be blood tests to find out how many subclinical cases there were. Because if you have a bunch of subclinical cases, because the current tests only show you active illness. So you don't, you can't pick up a, someone who's just hasn't got sick yet is going to get sick. You can't pick up someone who's had a mild illness. You thought it was the cold. Maybe it was COVID-19, but you're not feeling, even if you do a swab on him, it's going to be negative. The blood test is the gold standard. And that's what we're, where every country is pushing for. And it's, it's basically the next step is to get that and then ramp that up across your whole population. And then you actually know where you are. You actually know, hey, this whole borough in New York, and we'll see this, this whole borough has herd immunity. Those people, that whole borough of of 200,000 people, they got so much went through the system, they're basically uh, they're basically fireproof right now. Mm. doesn't matter if you open them up totally. They can hang out. They can do business. They can start up. Uh, they don't even have to do much social distancing at all because they've already got 60% herd immunity. And that we'll find that in Lombardy. You'll find actually the, 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 the places where it's hit hardest potentially are going to be the ones that are going to be able to ramp up economically the quickest, except in a country like uh, Singapore and Hong Kong, where they're very socially compliant. Everybody agrees they're 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 actually running right now, and they're going to run their their countries because they're doing it well because they have compliance. They're not a bunch of hat cats that need to be herded. I'm not mm. sure what animal you would use, but huh. Amer- if you think of America as a bunch of cats, well, it's almost impossible. Yeah, but they they are compliant. And they will then probably be able to maintain, because we know in Singapore, people are going on public transport, schools are open. Um, there's lots, but they're doing it very consistently with very significant controls. And they'll be able to hold out until uh, maybe even China until um, until the vaccine comes. So help, help me understand. So it, it seems like you're saying there's kind of maybe two different ways of going about it. One is if your people... If your city is built in such a way that it's going to be impossible for compliance, which I'm I'm guessing is people really stringently following kind of those the health protocols that a city is laying out while still being in contact with people that that you can either go down a route like Singapore where your economy is still open, your businesses, your schools are still open. But because people are following the proper procedures, they can continue to run or you have to break wave after wave after wave. And it's actually a systematic, um, a systematic flooding of the population with COVID-19 until there reaches herd population and then we're fine. So you're saying that we're going to be knocking down the first wave and then once that's knocked down and under control, then the governments will intentionally open up society so that that second wave can begin to move through and then they'll shut down and try to stop that second wave. And they'll be doing this until we get immunization. Yeah, they're not doing it intentionally. I think every time they open up, they're hoping that they will be Singapore. They're hoping that they will look like Singapore. They'll open up and think, maybe our people will be smartened up. You know, they'll open up and think, maybe we're going to look like Taiwan. Maybe we're going to be Korea. Everybody dreams that Mm. their people will be more compliant than they are. They, maybe they're actually listening to what we're saying. And what, what maybe they're reporting. I mean, one, one of the significant things is they report every illness. Every little bit of illness gets reported in these countries and they have active follow-up and they put people in quarantine centers. They have them set up. And so if you have COVID, you don't stay at home um, mm. and infect your whole extended family. You get moved off. And if people tell you to move off into this into this big warehouse where there's a bunch of other people that are mildly sick, you accept that. You say, for the good of the country, mm. I will do it. A lot of countries, a lot of people say, to heck with the good of the country. It's it's out of my comfort zone. I'm not going to do that. I, mean, I, I don't feel that ill. 
I don't even, you know, why should I go and, and leave my, my nice computer and, and all my, my nice backyard. I'm, I'm just going to stay here and I'm not going to infect anybody. I won't do very much, but we know that that's impossible to do. Mm. So it takes a certain degree of, so every country is hoping that, that, that when the, when they flatten at the first wave, that maybe the, the controls they put in will work. And, and we, we don't really know until we allow it to open up again, because there's no one country, which is similar. Our social, our, our in, in Italians are not good distancers. They're, they are relational people who who hug each other and kiss each other on the cheek. Well, even when you say social distancing for them, that's going to look a lot more when they're trying to hold back than a German. So, so I think all there's no way of working this out in some ways for a lot of these countries until you loosen up and then get a feel. What's it like? So when so when you're talking about the compliance in some of these countries. It is, it's not just, hey, we're in quarantine and everyone's locked down. And if you go out, you get fined because that's kind of like forced compliance. But you're talking about more like a cultural compliance where everyone's already wearing face masks or everyone is already making sure they're not shaking hands or hugging and maintaining uh, a, a high level of hygiene and cleanliness. Like wh- it's, 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 it's primarily through social networks that this disease passes. Mm -hmm. So it is a social networking disease. So you can be very compliant. Um, You can be a young person who's got multiple groups of friends that you meet with in their homes. You you look like you're not going out to stores, but you're meeting with a group of friends here and another group of friends over there. They're meeting with other, you've got a whole hidden social network, which nobody is aware of. It's in people's homes and the virus is passing rapidly through that that social network and their young people who have almost no symptoms. Mm. So it's passing hidden um, underneath the society and then it pops up in all sorts of places, old folks' homes, in parents that are older, they suddenly start dying. And people are saying, what happened? You know, where did that go? Everybody was, nobody was on the streets. Everybody was really, but it, you know, there was, there was people that went out and visited friends and it, this network uh, uh, was, was happening under, you know, official noses. And in countries like Taiwan and countries like Singapore, they have a strong, strong sense of social responsibility. People just don't do that. If the government says don't do it, they don't do it. Mm. Many other countries, if the government says don't do it, they'll do the opposite because they're used to uh, flaunting the rules of the government. They think the government has got too much control and they're automatically, if the government says something, they're probably initially going to do the opposite. So are we looking to, like when we're flat, flattening that curve, do we want it to flatten and go to zero because of complete lockdown and then open it up again after? A couple of months or are we kind of trying to flatten it and just not overwhelm our our hospital systems so so lucas the 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 key metric or key arithmetic to look at for everyone is the doubling time um, and that is the best way to understand this how many days does it take for the number of cases in a specific area to double mm. um, that's basically a logarithmic curve but for the average person it's a way of telling a slope of a curve very readily. And obviously the smaller the doubling time, the steeper the curve. So one way of no, that governments actually look at it, they can, they can do the logarithmic curve, but that's actually easier for the average person to understand is doubling time. For example, if you look, I've got a, a graph here where I'm just looking at doubling times. Uh, Korea, the, um, in, in Korea, their doubling time, it hit really hard because they had a lot of people in um, in uh, in in communities that were very close, and for about ten days they were having a doubling time of two point five, which is pretty well maximum. That is about as fast as this virus moves. Mm. And uh, then then they suddenly got things into control, and over a period of five days, their doubling time went up to ten. Wow! Right now, America, New York, right now has got a doubling time. It was down as far as two point five. Its doubling time is now starting to move up to three, three point five. So that's what every governor is looking at. He's looking at his doubling time. He's and as soon as that doubling time looks like it's consistently improving, you don't have to wait for, you don't have to wait for the the whole thing to get out. He's going to think now. Can we possibly think about 
sending kids back to school. There's a, there's a few things that you look at. I mean, in terms of social um, opening up social distancing, one is children and school. That's a huge thing. The second thing is allowing people to go out and do more shopping. The third thing is gradually opening up uh, key industries and saying, can this can this plant work? With significant amount of social distancing, can we can we open up this area of the of the economy and people can travel without being too close? So there's a lot of different blocks that they're trying to fit together. As soon as they see that curve beginning to drop, they're starting to think, "Hey, can we can we start opening up this? Can we do that?" And they're looking at China. China's really good. China's been consistently they've been locked down, but they've opened up gradually. They still have the virus. Um, and they're they're holding it down. What they're doing is very incremental um, openings um, in their in their economy. Um, I'm not sure the one of the last things you'll open up is is uh, is restaurants and um, and coffee shops and things like that. That'll be one of the last things you'll open up a lot of business first. Allow people to do a bit more shopping, uh, restricting the number that come into a store. You want people to buy that that stimulates the economy. You want people to work. And the final thing will be that and you want kids to be able to go to school. And so that's an area that will be opening up. All of these are incremental. So. What do you think about what what's what Sweden has done? Because Sweden has chosen not to shut everything down. They've kind of tried yeah, to go they, more they, the route they, of Korea. Is do you think it's because what what I'm what I'm hearing you say right now and what I'm gathering is if we lived in a society where everyone was keeping social distancing, washing their hands, not touching each other, and um, when they did have symptoms, immediately going to the doctor, doing their self quarantine, their isolation that we could go on with business as usual and not have to really clamp down hard on international travel and all these things if we were a more compliant society across the globe. But because we're not, because we as humans, we want our personal liberties and we're, you know, sometimes we have, we, we don't care. We're like, well, like you said, like, I don't feel sick, so whatever. Because of that, We've had to shut down schools. We've had to shut down travel. But there's actually, there could have been a possibility where that didn't have to happen. Um, I think the thing that we did, we weren't smart enough, fast enough, was shutting down international travel. That's the last thing that's going to be opening up. You, you know, you, you, when you think of international travel, the way we're set up, unless we get into some sort of space travel or, you know, being able to, you know, hover yourself up or, mm-hmm. you know, transmogrify yourself. You're putting people for a long period of time in a small tube and you're mixing them all up. And so international travel is probably going to be one of the last things. I think for the next year, we really are going to see countries very isolated, almost going into the, they maybe allow a, a bit of internal movement. There's going to be a lot of control of the borders. And that's what's happening in China. Japan is now locking down. They're realizing they're getting they're getting cases coming into Japan. Mm. The countries that will be able to be most open are the ones that have suffered the most and therefore have the most herd immunity. So you may even have a country like Italy may be able to open up more because there are people like, say, in Lombardy in northern Italy, that area may say, we don't actually mind because we already have herd immunity because we've gone through such a terrible terrible way of doing it but no one's going to choose to do it that Mm. way because of the suffering they've gone through and i think we're going to see variations in in uh, individuals in individual countries america is not one country it is a it is a mixture of different cultures and places and you may see hawaii for example hawaii right now the curve is already uh slammed down significantly our doubling rate has gone from three maximum at the very beginning, down it's gone up to eight. Wow! So everything's looking like Hawaii already is looking a lot more like um, Singapore or like Taiwan. However, what does that mean for letting people from New York visit you? Uh, you want to get the flights in from New York? Do you think Hawaii is going to readily say no way? Yeah, just bring a few train, <laughs> train loads of people from New York <laughs> or anywhere else. 
And so they may be able to say, hey, we'll accept people from Taiwan. And so you'll get countries and states that, that are actually sort of, you might say, have a, have a, a clean pla- passport. Uh, their passport is literally virus-free. Um, and almost anybody from Taiwan or from Singapore could come right now to Kona and we wouldn't worry about them, but not for the rest of America. So, so it sounds, I know you're not saying this. I know that you're not saying, um, hey, it's great for all of those cities and countries that have suffered great loss because it's not just like Italy all had a cold and now they're over it. It's they, they went through um, a lot of pain. They lost a lot of lives through a lot of grief and suffering. So I know you're not, you're not saying, hey, I think that we should just all you know, overwhelm our hospitals, have a lot of life loss and just move on with our lives. But it does seem like there is a case for what's happening in Sweden where they're saying, hey, we're not going to do what the rest of the world is doing in shutting everything down. We're going to operate with self-awareness and compliance and make sure that we're practicing healthy social distancing. Hopefully people are doing that. And we're going to try to get this to spread throughout our community so that we have herd immunity so that we can continue on with our lives without excessive loss of life. Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, the question is, is a vaccine most likely will be here in a year. Let's say be very, very positive in a year. Um, How many people, how many of your friends do you want to die and your grandparents do you want to die in that year? How much are you willing to pay to keep yeah. a whole segment of people alive that would would not be alive? And so no one knows exactly what that is. How much is it worth it to have lost, you know, maybe up to 10% of people that would live another 10 years, another 15 years? Um, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. Um, if there was no vaccine, if we had no hope for a vaccine, then it would be pretty clear that Sweden's doing the right thing. We've just got to, you know, take our chances and gradually do it. But everybody's hoping that maybe the vaccine's going to come through in six months. We have lots of people saying, and there's, we're in a, we're in a, a time when this may be true, and it would be very sad mm. if we didn't wait for six months. And so I don't think there's any answer. And the other thing is we can't compare countries. No country is can be easily compared to another because each one culturally, in terms of their inbuilt social distancing, um, the infectivity of this virus is different for every culture. Sweden's infectivity, it's baseline even before they start because they're already socially distancing. Hmm. Swedes are, they were were practicing social distancing before this virus came along. That's their culture. It's a a cold winter, much more colder and people live in homes more separately. It's not nearly as urban, though they do have some urban areas. And so I think we really can't, every country in many ways has to forge their own pathway. Uh, so much depends upon the culture. You can't force people to do, you for, You can't herd cats. doesn't matter how much you can train them and get a sheepdog. And I can guarantee a sheepdog only can herd sheep. And that, even that, it's a bit of a challenge, huh. but at least sheep have got a certain thing. But you try to get cats, you put a sheepdog and give them 30 cats, he won't be able to hold one together. And so... Um, so anyway, I think that overall, this is basically a new world. Every mm. every country is unique. Some countries are going to be able to do it quite well. Taiwan's a good example. They're going to hold out. I think they've got a, a good population. They've got a good industry. They've got a compliance. Um, I think uh, people who accept a certain rule of law and are very rule, much more willing to accept that. Um, you've got countries like Italy, which probably are going to be far more difficult, and it's it's going to be a a yo-yo course for them. Yeah, right now in the Khalij in in the Gulf, um, the the way the family structure is set up is most people are living in in houses with two or three kind of family units combined. So you have ten to you know fifteen people sometimes, depending on how big the house is. People living in one house. Um, with the elderly, you know, it's very family centric. Um, and, and the idea of a good time is, is hanging out with people and going to massive weddings with hundreds of people every weekend, it seems. And so right now, the, the, the stance of the government really has been to shut everything down, restrict all even intercountry travel. Um, right now that we're in the midst of, you know, these 24 hour quarantines, um, you're not even able to go and go on a run 
by yourself outside. So I see I, I, I see what you're saying about how every culture is different, every nation's different based on um, how the social structure is set up. And if you have a place like Sweden where everyone's already been in quarantine the last, you know, 50 years, then, you know, it's fine to carry on as is. But in these other countries where the the, the, the social network is much more uh, tight knit and everyone's continuing to meet with one another on a weekly, daily basis, that there has to be some of those uh, um, precautions taken to make sure that it doesn't just explode across the country, especially where there's not ample healthcare, there's not ample ventilators or beds for people. And yeah, and, and Lucas, I think what countries are going to be doing is, I mean, one of the whole areas that's happening is where you've had like New York, a lot of their medical people, once they get these these blood tests, these show our level of uh, of our antibodies, uh, it's primarily IgG, the long-acting one. There's an IgM, which is short-acting, but the main test is these antibodies click in after around 20 days. You start doing large antibody surveys, blood surveys of your population. You discover that there's a whole chunk of your community um, that is immune. Mm. Um, all of Brooklyn, Brooklyn is immune. Then you know that th you could send those people to Dallas when there's an outbreak in Dallas. You could move all of those medical people. They actually are totally free to take care, and then you're not going to see doctors and nurses dying. So you're going to have countries that are that are actively looking at ways of freeing up. Um, number one, taking care of this problem so it doesn't produce a huge amount of suffering. Um, uh, there's no there's no country that's going to be able to hold it down forever. Even if a vaccine doesn't come, it's going to be really tough uh, down the road for Taiwan and Singapore. There, there's a reckoning that's going to come. You can't stay like this way forever. Mm. And uh, I don't know how that's going to work out. I think we're all really hoping that we're going to come up with a vaccine. But this is a this is a bug that has resisted. They had a hard time coming up with Ebola vaccine hard time coming with many of these vaccines that are RNA uh, viruses. They're not easy ones to produce a, 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 a vaccine for. So for all those reasons, every every country is going to be trying to work it out. It's it's actually more sociological and anthropological, anthropological than it is medical. Wow. The medical community can be putting a bit of input in, but it's the anthropologists and sociologists, in fact, sociologists are, this that profession is going to, is going to go through a huge growth phase where where people are in the next year or two we're going to be looking at sociologists and say hey can you talk to us and give us some advice mm. yeah like like you said it is a whole we're we're entering into a whole new phase of society and culture of what it's gonna what society will look like in the coming next hundred years this really probably is a defining moment for the next hundred years. Um, in reshaping culture and society, and I, it also the, the the point of testing. It's not just testing of who is currently sick, but who has those antibodies. And it seems what you're saying is that the solution for the globe is to ramp up antibody testings so that people can get that stamp of hey, you're free and clear, um, and you can then move throughout society. My my question right. my question then kind of um, tangents kind of to more kind of maybe a, a political subject or topic. What's your opinion when it it comes to people's civil liberties, especially in America? There's this conversation: people's civil liberties versus you know government compliance or um, quarantine, uh, lockdown, just where 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 are we in the the government's you know specifically in America the government's federal and state's ability to step upon and say step upon a society and say this is what you can and can't do versus um us be willing to take care of our our fellow neighbor like where is that boundary and at, at what point does you know us having to get tested to be able to travel and to have a, a stamp on our passport saying that we're fear, free and clear with, you know, antibodies to drive across the state line. Um, where does that kind of begin to uh, infringe upon our, our civil liberties? 
Well, I think we we already have that uh, pretty clearly um, in in for many illnesses. For example, you can't get a job to work in Hawaii unless you're cleared for tuberculosis. Mm. So because tuberculosis is a significant problem, it's accepted. No one comes to me and says, I refuse to have this done because uh, so they come to the clinic and we, we do the TB test and we, we check them out and we say, yeah, you're clear. You can go and work in a nursing home with old people who are high risk because you don't have tuberculosis. So I think that from that standpoint, there's an acceptance um, pretty much that individual's freedom is, is your freedom is predicated upon uh, the potential for that freedom to hurt someone else. The more your freedom is going to hurt someone else, the more we restrict that freedom. And so we're doing that all over. We stop people from smoking. We used to say you should have the freedom to smoke wherever you wanted to. Then we limit it. Now it's, you know, you can't even work in restaurants because or you can't smoke in restaurants because mm-hmm. of secondhand smoke. So I, th- I think overall the, the, that is, that is not going to be a big issue. I think that we live in such a, uh, um, uh, a, a common culture um, that there's a lot of awareness that we have to give up our individual rights and freedoms that we consider them to to travel or to work uh, because of the risk for other people. There may be some discussion how risky that is, and but that's already worked out. I, I think the bigger issue that's going to come long term is is this this illness is just the beginning, I believe, of many illnesses we're going to face. Uh, we're just seeing, and this one isn't that bad compared to what it could have been. Mm. Uh, our, as our population grows, as as uh, our desire to um, to have meat and to have pigs and and birds um, continues, I don't see any change in that. Uh, man's uh, love of meat and love of uh, the taste of it. I don't see a mass movement to vegetarianism and not and shutting down all of our big uh, animal productions. But these are huge vectors. It was it was a it was a meat market. It was a wild meat market. But they were they were probably it was a pangolin or something like that 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 got it from a bat. Um, but even if you remove those those sorts of wild meat out of the Chinese market, you still have vast herds of pigs and and chickens and uh, ducks. And these are incredible vectors for other viruses that can that can move into a crowded population. So I think this is like at the beginning of we're going to get over this. I believe we're going to make it. It's it's going to be a mark um, on all of us. I believe that um, all of us are going to remember 2020 for many different reasons. But it is going to be a incredible marking a year uh, for mm. societies. No, no society is going to move out of it um, unchanged. Some societies will be able to weather it and keep their structure, like Taiwan, I think, like Singapore, um, maybe even a bit of China. Uh, but many societies are going to be radically changed. India is going to be radically changed. I don't. There's going to be societies we don't even know what it's going to look like at the end of 2020. And but it's going to be a, a primer for what's coming in five years, unless we change things radically. We're living in a crowded, uh, crowded, uh, pop, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, world, and we love traveling. Those are the two things. You put those things together, you put crowding and and desire to travel. Uh, this, these, these really bad viruses are all from bats. Uh, there is no mammal that is as close to humans as bats. Really? And uh, yeah, so we look at the bat and we say, "Boy, why them?" And it's because they all love hanging out together. And they fly out and travel a lot, so you can you know there's no there is no mammal that is as much like us as bats. <laughs> we hang together in caves, and then we fly out and travel large distances yeah. as we look for food. So, so bats they they harbor the Ebola virus, and they travel through the jungle and they they eat fruit and and they're eaten by people or they have droppings um, that lead to Ebola. Um, we have bats that live in central China in caves with a million bats in one cave. Uh, several, in some caves, up to several million bats all crowded together in the wintertime. I mean, the ultimate, the ultimate, uh, but very much like our cities. I mean, there is no, there is no better metaphor for these bat colonies than New York or uh, some of our big crowded cities, people living on top of each other. Um, and so we are a culture that loves hanging out together. And then we love traveling and bats. They don't just live in caves like 
like some fish where they, they live in, they're actually, they, they, they sleep in caves, but then they go out and hunt. They hunt insects, they hunt fruit, they travel all over. They're incredibly um, uh, peripatetic. So there, there is no, there is no um, uh, mammal that is as close to us as the bat in terms of being peripatetic, loving traveling, but also loving hanging out close to each other. So the, I think that's really fascinating. I, I've, as a kid, I've always loved bats. Um, now, it's, yeah, it's, it's, now it's kind of sad. It's like, now you've are, discovered why. Yeah. Well, they because are kind of like actually, you know, flying rats, but, um, you know, I, 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 what the reason you're saying that over the next hundred years, over the next 50 years, we're going to be, begin to see an increase of these viruses is just like in the last 20 years, because of increased air travel because of increased world connectivity and because of increased um, urbanization where people are moving into cities in close contact and quarters with one another that we've we've seen Ebola we've seen SARS we've seen um, swine flu I mean H1N1 um, that all in the last 20 years we've seen a lot of these major viruses that haven't been able to really hit like this one has that hasn't been able to spread throughout society like this one has but you're saying that this is that we've kind of had a foretaste of it over the last 20 years um with these scares that have never actually um amounted to a global pandemic like it is now and now this is kind of like the primer of what we'll see moving forward because of our global connectivity and our our global um proximity to one another layered upon the fact that in China, they're not going to stop eating bats and across the world, they're not going to stop eating chicken and other, other meat products. I, I don't think as much in China, they're eating bats. They may eat a bit, but what the bat is, is a vector for viruses. It is a virus the, the bat communities are massive viral, uh, hothouses. Bats have thousands more viruses and they're able to tolerate viruses without getting sick hmm. and they they have all these viruses and then these viruses are put onto almost always in fact the in in the middle east it's almost 100 percent sure that bat droppings infect camels and that there is a there was a transfer a mutation of a bat virus that went into a camel and that then is now transmitted to human beings it's almost 100 percent sure that it wasn't eating bats that led to um the current COVID case, they think it's a pangolin. It's like a little anteater that probably had some bat droppings. The virus mutated in that that pangolin, and then people ate the pangolin. So it's a it's usually huh. a, a series. We know for swine flu, it's it's bird pig bird pig human. Um, so it the pigs and and the uh, uh, the viruses move in huge flocks of birds, especially geese, ducks, but wild birds carry this around. I mean, the interesting thing when we look at pandemics, if we look back to history, it wasn't that men that traveled, it was rats that traveled that produced the bubonic plague. So one of the first big plagues was bubonic plague, but that was also a very social animal plus travel, except it wasn't the people that was traveling, it was the rats that were traveling. And they carried that plague wherever uh, seafarers went. And so it was a, it was disease of, of, was disease of roots. It was a belt and road disease. Wherever the belts and roads of the Silk Trail this, and especially shipping went, then these rats traveled, and that's what that's what brought the bubonic plague. So it was it was actually carried by rats. Now we're doing the opposite. It's humans that are carrying it, and we're traveling all over the place. Mm. And it's really hard to see how how it's the significant thing is how our 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 interest in traveling, our enjoyment is traveling is going to be radically affected and that how that's going to affect our whole culture where we love meeting, we love getting together. This, this is going to be a, probably the biggest shock to our human culture in in the, you know, in the, in the next coming years. So you think as society, we're going to realize that as much as we love traveling because of these, these viruses that are going to continue to increase, um, because we're on that vector of increase, because we're the way the world is shaped, the way that our society is shaped um, with, you know, like you said, these bats, these ducks, that that it, it is inevitable that these diseases 
um, will continue to increase. And because of that, we will have to realize as a society that as much as I love travel, that is going to have to be restricted. That's going to end up being curbed due to the fact that we as humans are now spreading these these viruses across the globe through our own travel. Do you think do you think I don't know. that there's it, gonna it, be a significant restructuring and and drop in global travel in the next decade because of this? I I don't know. I mean I, I certainly wouldn't be investing in airline stocks for a while for sure. <laughs> you know, right now that's pretty obvious. But I don't know. I mean we, I think we're going to get through this virus. We're going to make it through the next year. I, there's every good evidence that we're going to have a, a, a vaccine. I think then things will start to move back to normal. But um, what about when the next virus? Human population is increasing. Um, how is the next virus? We could, it could be a, a, a flu virus. Flu is far worse than coronavirus. Um, the, the influenza of eight, 1918 and 1919 it killed young men and women. It wasn't the elderly. It was the very center of of five uh, percent of the human race was was killed off by by an in, influenza mutation, and um, and wow. so we're looking now at the potential for that increasing dramatically. Number one, because we do travel so much. So it used to be one little mutation maybe got a few people in a little remote village sick. And they didn't see anybody else, and that mutation died off. It was a bad virus. It killed a bunch of people, but they didn't visit anybody else. It was the middle of winter in Mongolia. Now, any virus that gets into our community rapidly spreads hmm. um, with with the way our we're so interconnected. I don't know how that's going to affect it. I think we're going to become much smarter. Yeah. Uh, the very fact that um, that America shut its border. Um, it's going it's it's not going to let that happen again if if you have a viral outbreak we're going to have much clearer tsunami warning bells set up we've we've been hit the world has been hit like basically like this like the indonesian uh tsunami hit the Indo- indonesian ocean now they have their warning buoys set up and hopefully the next tsunami that starts in jakarta or starts in you know jakarta but starts somewhere in the indian ocean is not going to hit and result in a degree of, of deaths. This has been like a tsunami. We should have been smarter. Actually, Singapore and Hong Kong were smart. They they heard the bells. They were right next door. They got going, and they actually were able to protect themselves. Um, I think we're going to be much smarter. But the way that Hong Kong they did that was by restricting travel right away, mm. and they they shut down. and um, And so we're hopefully going to learn a lot from this in terms of how we ha- handle the next pandemic, but there will be more. There's there's literally no way medically these viruses are not going to increase. Um, it only it takes it takes a, a a population that is susceptible, and it takes a, a big connection with with animals, which we have. I don't see that changing it, and then it takes movement. So you take a population increasing uh, and 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 a connection with animals and movement, and uh, so one way that it would be mm-hmm. yeah, a, go ahead. a lot of people are a lot of people are saying and I don't agree with it, but a lot of people are pointing to, oh, you know, humans are destroying the world and Mother Nature is doing this to control human population. We have overpopulation. We need to stop having babies. We need to control the population. Um, is that what you're saying? Are you saying that this is due to oh, we have too many people in the world? We should control how many babies people are allowed to have? No, I certainly, because the countries that have done that are in in bad shape right now. China, Japan, even Italy are facing incredible social stress because they've tried to, they felt that they could control uh, population. And that, that's been a very false decision. And, uh, and uh, we get, uh, you know, um, femicide where, where they want boys more than girls. And as soon as we get into any sort of social engineering, it's called eugenics. And we learned a lot uh, from the, from the, the danger of eugenics uh, from the, uh, we hopefully should have learned a lot, but a lot of, of population control 
is tied to a form of eugenics where we believe that we should only have a certain number of people. And I, I believe very strongly that we should not be, we should be educating, we should be giving people the freedom to have the size of families that they want. And people will make the right decision, I firmly believe. However, we're going to have to seriously look at the way we live, the way we eat, and the way we, um, the way we travel. Mm. Uh, those things are, in, in my mind, far more significant. Right now, Japan and Italy are facing huge crises in the next 20 to 30 years with an aging population and very few people to care for them. China itself is facing a huge... Um, the countries that are actually healthier in that area are America. America is actually healthier because they haven't clamped down on a uh, on number of children. And so um, and that's I believe it's to, a very dangerous area. That's due to population co- collapse. That's due to the populations in China and Japan collapsing, and then their economies are collapsing because they don't have people in a workforce. They don't have a, a market for people to continue to stimulate the economy. That's right. I mean, I, I believe the human, the human uh, there will be a balancing that happens uh, when we give people the freedom to have as many children as they want. Um, I, I don't believe that is people, there, there are a lot of factors, that's a separate topic, but I, I, I primarily don't believe it's a matter of us somehow, we, we see the growth rate of the human, uh, you might say of humankind is tapering off. It's, it's gone through its own doubling and that doubling in almost every country, even in Africa, which has been the fastest growing right now um, of the whole world in terms of population, even as, as women's education increases, their population is uh, growth mm. rate is tapering off. So the, this doubling time is happening. That's I don't even see that as being that much of an issue. I see it much more in terms of how we live, what we eat, and how we travel. So it's not population because and I've read that population is of, of the human race is going to kind of curve curve off at around ten billion. And so you're saying it's not the population; it, it is the fact of how we are traveling, our, our how and what we are eating and how we are interacting. That's right. Those are the big things. I mean, I, I, I feel that the human population, obviously it's a dynamic that means this can happen. If we had not travel, if we had not been so social, and if we didn't mix so much, these viruses would never get a, uh, get a foothold. But isn't traveling, um, isn't traveling and mixing and meeting and being with one another, isn't that like good things? Like, isn't that what we should be doing for our, our social health? Totally. I mean, I, I think they're, they're absolutely essential and, and, and they, they, they stop us from having wars. You know, in the old days, you didn't travel, you hated the people next door. And so you fought until you got tired and killed a lot of one another off. And then you decided it's much better to, for people to visit, to travel, to, to trade, um, to, to learn that, that we don't need to kill each other to come up with an agreement of how to get along. Uh, and, and so I, I'm not at all criticizing that, but we need to discover ways of doing it in this new reality. Mm. Um, as our population, as our population has increased, we don't have the toleration for the degree of social mixing, um, that we once had that, that is interfering with our freedom. Mm. Uh, the same way back when, when Lucas, when your, your parents first came to America, they could go and um, they could wash their dirty clothes in any river they wanted to. Um, they could take their diapers. They didn't have throwaway diapers. They took their diapers and went to a stream and washed it off. They didn't worry about it. There were so few people, nobody. But nowadays we can't do that. We can't just dump our sewage into any stream. The more our population increases, the more we have to, we lose freedoms in, in these areas. And if we want to continue to be social, and if we want to continue to um, to travel, I, one area that is potentially is going to see a radical change in terms of animal husbandry and mm. and what we are free to eat. China is going to have to say we're no longer giving people the freedom to eat pangolins that and and to eat these other animals. We can't eat snakes. We can't eat bushmeat. Bushmeat is one of the biggest uh, 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 sort of um, vectors of Ebola uh, because people kill bats that have the Ebola virus and they get the Ebola. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a direct bat. And, and so that's one area where we could see significant control, but we're going to have to stop eating pork. We're going to have to stop eating chicken, uh, duck meat. Um, fortunately, um, beef is still 
uh, a vector that is not a been uh, not as significant as uh, as as pork, just because of the genetics of, of pigs and genetics of uh, of, of chickens and of uh, and of uh, ducks. But I would I would certainly say that uh, that 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 pork, duck, and chicken are very infectious animals because of the flu virus that that can live in chickens and ducks and pigs. So what, do you know why the genetics of beef makes it so that either they're not getting sick or they're not getting us sick? Is it because they're further no, away from us? I don't know. I, I would say that, number one, that the cattle, um, generally there's been a, you know, they're much more free range. Now we're doing a lot of, of, of uh, intense farming of cattle. It's potential that... Uh, that cattle will again become more of a vector. Uh, we know that tuberculosis was introduced by cows, mm. so it it was one of the first uh, bacteria that was transmitted from animals. So, you know, cattle do have their history. <laughs> we 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 have a history, but then we we we've learned how to deal with that, and it, they have not been viral vectors very much. Cattle have not been viral vectors; they've been bacterial vectors. Um, we know that most likely smallpox came from cattle. So there's, that's, that's another viral vector, uh, actually. Uh, so a bacteria, tuberculosis came from cattle, and smallpox, which we've eradicated, also came from cattle. So wow. those, are two, those are two diseases which were related to and particularly developed in Europe where there was an intense relationship between uh, people's cattle and people lived with their cattle right below them. Uh, you milk cattle with your own hands. Uh, uh, it, it's felt that, uh, that smallpox came out of cowpox. So the older disease is cowpox. It mutated into, into, uh, smallpox. And so, um, so we, these are all, this is the sort of, you might say the ecology of the, of, of our planet. It's, it's uh, fascinating. it's an ecology of a- animals and humans and billions of viruses and bacteria. They're all trying to increase their population dynamics as well that's that's part of the way that all of these we're all our dna has that similarity we're all striving to be triumphant tuberculosis is striving to be triumphant the coronavirus is wanting world domination uh you know Mm. if they had a brain it would be we want to dominate you know and their dna will seek to dominate and it'll look for those niches where it can spread and grow as much as um we as human beings are doing it so does that mean, I mean, my family, we eat a lot of chicken. I think that's probably the main meat that we eat. Um, beef and maybe like a red sauce. But other than that, it's normally chicken. Is it that us as as a family need to cut back on eating chicken and start to eat more beef because we might, you know, catch a virus? Or is it more the husbandry of it? It's the more taking the way that we take care of chickens, the way that chickens live, and a virus is going to get passed based on um, there's chicken to human contact or of something of that nature. And the only reason I should stop eating chicken would be to, um, stop stimulating that economy. That's correct. It's numbers and, and, and the ability to travel. So the main thing is numbers. So it's not the chickens themselves. They're, you know, there's nothing in eating chickens themselves. It's the, it's the farming of chickens of live chickens. Um, uh, you know, most of these viruses are actually mutating within a flock of chickens pat, or a flock of, of ducks. They're passed on and they happen to have some pigs nearby, then it's passed on to pigs. Um, and then that, that pig virus mutates and it's, it's very easily passed on to humans, probably through people who are taking care of pigs. So it's the whole, it's not the meat itself, but it's the whole economy that's built on eating that meat. So are you making a suggestion of change? Like if you were to make a suggestion to everyone listening to this, is it, Hey, start to change your diet or is that not really going to make a difference? Is it more on an industry level and a governmental level of, of controlling those industries? It's, it's industry. And it's, I mean, it's to some degree, Lucas, as I think about it, you know how we think of, 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 of Chinese eating pangolin mm-hmm. and, and civet. We say that's stupid. Who would eat a pangolin? You know, like right. who would eat a bat? Right. Right. Who would eat a bat? Um, you know, like bats. We don't even like bats, but you know, some people do. They they find bats tasty, but we find it very easy to critique Chinese and say those 
Chinese people shouldn't eat bushmeat or, you know, why are the Africans eating bushmeat? But by doing what we're doing and loving pork and loving duck, um, we are we are building the same the same structure. It's just on a much larger basis. Mm. I do not see how we can long term be pig eaters. Mm. Um, I do not see that. I, I see it as being probably the primary vector because it goes from from birds to pigs. Generally, it's a sometimes it's directly from birds to us, but generally it's birds, pigs, and then us. The same way it was bats, pangolins, and humans, or the same way it's bats, camels, mm. and humans. The virus, most viruses seem to take two steps and, uh, and pigs are, are probably the, the biggest one. And so our, our enjoyment of bacon, our enjoyment of, uh, pig meat, and it, you know, goes back to the old Testament, Lucas, a book that, you know, we need to read a bit more often about some of those dietary habits. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Man. Well, Dr. Curry, Don, thank you so much for, uh, man, I just so eye-opening, such an eye-opening conversation, um, especially that ecology of, of how these viruses are spreading and the reason why um, this is really a, a marker in time that's going to, to, it's kind of a primer for what we're, we're moving into in the next season of society by large of, of battling these these viruses and these bacterias. Um, so just really eye-opening. And um, I just really appreciate you coming on again and, and sharing. And maybe we'll do this again um, next month come May and we'll see where the numbers are. Where, where do you think we're going to be um, in a month from now? Oh, I, I think a month from now is going to be, it's, it's Africa, it's India, where we've seen nothing. So um, I don't even want to predict. Uh, uh, by the grace of God, may may these countries be protected from the chaos that looks to me looming. Yeah. Um, I don't even want to. I don't even want. It's even difficult for me to talk about it. Uh, may God have mercy on these countries, these Amen. crowded, poor countries. Um, Amen. Just in closing, in closing, Lucas, I'd like to say one book that's that really relates to all of this that it uh, by Jared Diamond called Guns, Germs, and Steel. Yep. And it looks at at, at uh, and it, it's one of the books that looks at how disease has affected us um, in civilizationally and how animals have affected us. And so animals and disease, the two of them are, as humans, we're intimately tied together. They, there's a blessing from them, but there's also a curse. Uh, we love animals, but we get diseases from animals. Our, our culture grows. The cultures that have been able to domesticate animals have grown rapidly. The cultures that do not have domesticatable animals have not grown. Um, they've stayed in a more primitive form. So animals and us, are, we're tied together. We, we have this relationship that's been right from the beginning. And the question is, how we, what is that relationship? What should it be? Hmm. Um, we will have that relationship. There you go. Thank you so much, Don. That's a great book. Okay. And, uh, Pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, it is so fun, Lucas. I think that that these these things we don't realize uh, how um, how we're living, um, you know the 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 huge societal impact that the uh, Black Death made, the huge societal impact that that smallpox made. Smallpox changed the face of the world. Mm. Um, um, we don't realize it. We we don't just realize. We we tend to think history happens, but history literally happens in surges. It happens. It'll move like this, and you'll hit something that just radically changes. And, and, and quite a few of those have been diseases that have radically changed cultures. They've changed sociology. They've changed the way people relate. Um, you know, and so it's, this is going to be like one of those ones. That, but it's, this is just a minimal. This isn't a big one. And that's why I, I really feel this is, this is a little bit of a warning. It's like a mini tsunami. Mm. It's not big compared to what what it could have been or what it could be in the future uh, if we don't learn. Man, scary. Yeah. Well, Don, I really appreciate your time. Um, I don't know quite how to, <laughs> you, you shared so much. I don't know quite how to end it. Um, well, that's good, Lucas. Don't, we'll just, we don't want to end it. We'll just say to be continued. Yes. And I, I honestly, your last question was so good. I, I, I think I just, uh, my heart it, right now for Africa and for India, Mm. It is uh, the the social turmoil, 
uh, chaos, anarchy. That's all I see. I, I literally, I don't see any good, good story here. I don't see China or Taiwan or even Europe. I see these countries. They've been, they've been latest because they're less connected to travelers. So the, the countries that have been least connected, but the countries that have been most connected are the wealthiest. They're the ones that have had the most interconnection. They've got business. They've got, they, they've got everything. It's, it's the first world that has got it, but now it's moving into the third world. And that's the, the countries that, that it, in a month's time, we are going to see, um, I think, some terrible things. I, I just don't even want to predict it. It's so terrible. Yeah. Yeah. We need to be praying for those countries because like you said, it's those third world countries that they haven't gotten it yet. And once it, once it hits there, um, it's going to be really bad. Yeah. The only thing that's protecting them, Lucas, is youth. So these third world countries actually have a lot of young people and not proportionally as many old people. Mm. So that's the only thing that is their strength. Well, Don, honestly, let's do this again next month. Um, it's really interesting yeah. to see how the conversation has progressed from just a, a four week, five weeks ago. Um, and so I think next month is going to be hopefully, hopefully not too terrible, but totally. thank you so much for listening to this episode of own the future. I'm really glad that we got to spend this time together today. Please. If you enjoy the show, if you like it, if you found this informative and helpful, email it to your friends. Don't just post it on social media, text it or email it to your friends because they will be grateful and they'll feel love that you are sharing something with them today. Also, this is a perfect time to get my book, Anchor the Discipline to Stop Drifting. I wrote this book in a time where I felt like everything in my life had stopped. Everything was swept out from under me and I had to reset my bearings on what does it look like to be productive, to be fruitful, to be successful. And that's what I wrote this book out of. It's a highly actionable book, which is perfect for you in the season where you are probably sitting around more than you normally do. And that normally doesn't lead to good things. So take action, get this book, and I will see you next time. Remember, I'm Lucas Scrobot. You're a change maker. And if you own your story, you'll own the future.